Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Gyatumse Longkamer, the host of this channel. And today I'm here with Professor Brown uh, to talk about his new book, Jesus and Addiction to Origins, the Words and Anthropocentric Study of Religion by Professor Willie Brown. So I think it's a wonderful privilege to have you here, Professor uh, Brown, in the New Books Network. And I think today's conversation on your book will be, I believe, will be a very fruitful one. How I came across this book is um, because me also, I mean, as a scholar of religion, I'm quite interested in the literatures that are coming out in the area of, uh, you know, religious study, specifically on Christianity and all of those aspects. So I'm on the lookout for literatures. And when I came to know about this book and the contents in this book, I was quite intrigued by it. And I tried to get the book and I went through it. And I think um, the argument that the book makes and also the the materials and evidences that it provides is really interesting and amazing. And I think that is where we are going to delve into today in this book. And I think that'll be something which is which will be very interesting in that sense. So, Professor Brown, uh, can you tell me something about yourself? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I am a have been a long-time professor of uh, religion at a Canadian university in Alberta, Edmonton, the University of Alberta. Um, I am retired now, and uh, uh, because of that, I had time to collect some of the essays that I've written over the years and put them in the same book. This was at the uh, urging of Professor uh, Russell McCutcheon, uh, who is actually the editor of the book. Um, and he is my good friend. Um, so I'm a, I'm a retired professor of uh, Christian origins. That is the history of early of earliest Christianity of the first two or three centuries. I did my uh, PhD at the University of Toronto in Canada. Um, and I've been uh, uh, especially... Uh, uh, blessed to have had the opportunity to study with some very good scholars, including Don Wiebe, uh, whom you may know, and uh, John Kloppenborg, who's a very famous professor of Christian origins. So here I am, uh, retired. I don't have much to yeah. do except talk to you. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really quite interesting, actually. And, you know, the whole area of um, study of Christian origin is something quite interesting. But before coming to that one, Tell us something about this book. I mean, how does these papers come together? Uh, since the title of the paper also says uh, Jesus and Addiction to Origin, and you know, you're kind of formulating a way of trying to understand religion and anthropocentric study of religion. So, how, how did this paper come together? I'm sure you have wrote many papers apart from this, but why this specific paper and why this specific title and all of this? Yeah. The chief concerns over the years has been to try to bring the study of Christian origins into the larger field of the general study of religion, uh, which has been very, very difficult. And uh, uh, to this point, 
Christian scholars or scholars of Christian beginnings um, are not really familiar with the theories and the methods of uh, the general study of religion, the classic theories of religion, much less the modern theories of religion. So that has been one of my interests. And so early on in my career, I began reading in theories of religion and quickly came to realize that religion is a human invention. Humans have made religions. Uh, so without humans, there would be no religion. Um, uh, this includes the invention of the gods and the ancestors and all the uh, supernatural beings that populate religious discourse. Um, so once one realizes that religion is a human affair, then the study of it, too, must be uh, the study of humans, not the study of gods or the, uh, the content claims of, of religious traditions. Uh, it sounds very simple, but in practice it is difficult. Um, and in, uh, in the history of the study of Christianity and in the history of the study of religion, this has not been done enough. Uh, for example, in the year 2010, the IAHR, the International Association for the History of Religions, met in Toronto, and its overall theme was religion is a human affair. So at this great international setting, it still had to be said that religion is a human affair, uh, and its study must be anthropocentric, therefore. So I, uh, uh, the first few articles in the volume this more or less explain what anthropocentric means and the study of religion as a human affair. And the rest of the articles are kind of exemplary of that in my own field of Christian origins. So I think that's how these, um, these articles kind of came together, the theory articles and then the examples of the theory applied uh, more or less, for better or worse. It, it's not always very, very clear in the articles. Coming to the contents of the book, um, there are three parts. One is after word. Now, the first part is uh, generally this. Uh, there are three chapters here, and the part two is particularly this. And there are uh, chapter four to ten is, uh, are the chapters here. So coming to the part one of the book, part one talks about religion and many of the issues and the things, but I want to bring out some themes and questions here. Uh, one of the things is uh, the distinction that uh, you talk about in uh, between biblical studies and religious studies and uh, how, how, how these two are distinct and also at the same time how, how these two mix with each other. So can you explain that one more? Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, um, biblical studies is, ought to be, it seems to me, a subfield of the general study of religion. But as a matter of fact, it has historically not been, except for you know, there have been some exceptions, some exceptional scholars, but it has been its own discipline, uh, quite happily going along, uh, doing very sophisticated work, uh, but without any knowledge of the general discourse of religion, without any knowledge of the general theories of religion. Um, so it has been uh, rather insulated uh, and isolated from a more general scholarly discourse. I was kind of hoping that this book would make a contribution to break that isolation a little bit. Now, why that is, I don't know if you want to talk about that. Why 
the biblical scholars have not been interested that have not been interested so much in um, in the, the general study of religion. It seems to me that by and large, the interest of biblical studies from the very beginning has been a hermeneutic uh, interest, an interest in interpreting what the meaning of the text is for those who take the Bible as scripture. Um, so it has really been a theological affair that has been uh, a theological interest that has been at the forefront. And in the general study of religion, that is not the case. So there has been this, this, this kind of conflict. So biblical studies scholars don't read Durkheim, they don't read Marx, they don't read Bourdieu, they don't read uh, many uh, other scholars, including McCutcheon and so forth. Um, they have their own isolated little house in which they work with their own tools. So since you have made uh, this distinction and since you have brought out uh, this aspect, um, now in this very section, you also talk about the anthropocentric study of religion. So uh, I think there is, a, there is an evident critique that will come here in the sense of anthropocentric study of religion from, let's say, from biblical scholars or any other religious scholar where they will say that there is this divine aspect to human history and the human contract or the, the human thought processes and all. So uh, how does this anthropocentric study tries to understand that one, that divine aspect, and how does uh, the anthropocentric study makes more sense in the light of all, all of these aspects that are there in the re religion or theological studies? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that is, that is the claim that the divine aspect of a religion and religious history is part of the uh, the human invention of religion. It's human who have invented the gods, and then uh, set up elaborate systems for uh, for consulting the gods, for uh, paying them reverence, uh, and asking for their assistance and pleasing them and so forth. But that too is human. The gods are not independent of humans. There would be no gods except for human imagination uh, that has brought them to life. And I would say that the gods live really only in the discourse of religion, in the talk about religion, in its rituals, in its sacrifices, and, and uh, practices. So I don't, uh, I, I don't, I, I'm not quite, quite ready to accept the distinction between religion, uh, the human dimension of religion, and the divine dimension of religion. I think. The divine dimension of religion is part of the human dimension. Yeah, yeah. Um, Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's uh, that's um, that makes sense. Um, so um, here, I think uh, coming to the next question, right? And this is about the um, history. So you, you talk about the very um, historical produ production, the process of historical production and uh, several different junctures it takes in and the different form that it takes. And you mentioned four aspects, right? The making making of the facts, uh, assembling the facts and retrieving the facts and signifying the facts. So how does this uh, historical production works? What is this really historical production is all about? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, humans um, humans write histories about all kinds of things. Um, you know, there are many books, history books. But uh, my question is, how does how does the, how do these histories come into being? How I mean how do we know to write the histories? Uh, I mean, we two thousand years ago, 
but there was none of us were there to witness. There were no eyewitness accounts. There are just fragmentary records. Um, so um, I came to think of the production of, of, of history making as a, an elaborate production. Uh, real history is made by everyday people. Uh, all people make history. They do things. They say things. Sometimes they record things. Um, but not all of those human doings, those everyday human doings, get put into an archive. They, don't, they get lost. There's a tremendous loss of that making of history. And then once the archive is established, then the historian must go into the archives and retrieve the facts that are in the archive. But not all that is in the archive is useful to the historian. So there's another selection process and another process of loss. Um, and finally comes the, the, the final step of making history, which is to produce a narrative. Uh, and in the narrative, you know, some facts get emphasized, some facts get neglected. Uh, so there's a further loss and a further uh, restriction of what history really is. So history is a is a is a tremendously complex process. Uh, history making is, which combines both loss and invention. Uh, we often invent. Uh, uh, narratives where the evidence has gaps, for example. You know, we fill in the gaps with a narrative. So I think that's what I meant, is I wanted to address the complexity of history, that it is not easy, uh, and that Christians especially ought to take more um, caution when they produce their own histories to realize that they are fictioned histories, fictioned narratives. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's quite interesting. The com bringing out the complexity of history in terms of its uh, laws and in terms of its, you know, the narrative that it creates. Uh, that's uh, quite interesting. And uh, coming to the another aspect, where in one of the chapter you wrote about the American Jesus. Now, you know, I'm here in India, and you know, uh, my people are Nagas. You know, I'm from Nagaland, and. I can also really imagine what a Naga Jesus would look like, right? I mean, what do Naga Jesus would be like? I mean, how does Naga think about and how do Naga really construct this very idea of Jesus? But I think the idea of American Jesus is also interesting in that aspect. So what really is this American Jesus and how does it, I mean, how does it distinguish itself from the Jesus of the Bible or the whatever sort, maybe, yeah. Yes. Well, if you would ask American Jesus believers... Uh, they would um, they would not uh, admit that the Jesus they believe in is different from the Jesus of the Bible. Um, that is the interesting thing: is Americans are um, a nation of Jesus believers. That doesn't mean that every American is a Jesus believer. Only that Jesus is a central figure of American religious and political discourse. Uh, as I sort of point out in that that article, you know, Jesus is. Uh, uh, present in almost every uh, political and religious conversation. Uh, and Jesus is uh, uh, an ally for uh, all kinds of causes, political, social, personal. Um, uh, so that's why I sort of called America a, a, a Jesus nation. Um, and and uh, the contest is really between uh, the various Jesuses that Americans believe in. Uh, if you're a, 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 a super 
uh, right-wing evangelical Christian in in America. You, your Jesus supports your position. Um, if you're a liberal scholar of early Christianity, uh, you produce a Jesus that supports your liberalism and your intellectualism. Uh, so it seems seems to me, and it's in that context that you know the how we imagine origins and how we imagine history sort of plays in. Uh, I have there the example of the American Jesus Seminar, which is a scholarly organization uh, which tried to recover from all the evidence the real the real Jesus. And I kind of laugh at that. Um, and I'm wondering even why scholars are preoccupied with that, because they're not able to change the political religious discourse in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think this is where the title "Addiction to Origins" also comes in. And I uh, here I think you make a bold statement, and the bold statement is this one: in the sense that you says the historical Jesus is dead; his body is gone to dust. Now, what do we you really mean by the historical Jesus is dead? In that sense, yeah. Uh, well, that's what I I, I mean it quite literally. Uh, Jesus is. Is is as dead as uh, as my ancestors. Uh, he um, his words, um, if he ever, uh, if they were ever recorded, you know, or if they were ever heard, they've they've also disappeared because words, as soon as they're spoken, they disappear unless unless we record them like we're doing now. Uh, um, and the recording of Jesus' words in the Gospels, well, that has been demonstrated by biblical scholars that those are uh, made up to the most, to the large extent. Um, So Jesus is really quite silent. He's a figure of our imagination. He's a figure of our discourse. And whenever one hears uh, Jesus mentioned as an author, uh, an authorization or a legitimator of this position or another position, one ought to be suspect because uh, Jesus is... uh, uh, is uh, really a rhetorical, the figure Jesus and the name Jesus is a rhetorical justification for our preferences, our ethical preferences, our aesthetic preferences, our cultural and social preferences. Yes, yeah, um, interesting. But he, I... he can't talk back to us anymore. Mm, yeah, yeah. So that is where you kind of uh, come to the book uh, or the Christian who said the gospel of Mark, right? And that, this is where you kind of elaborate on Mark. And uh, while elaborating on Mark, you say that uh, the Mark appears to be a local story with a local agenda for its uh, culture so or for its author in a sense. So what what is what is this unpacking of Mark all about, and what does it say about the Christian community and the uh, you know the Christian uh, there in that during that time? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, the the larger point I make in that article is that uh, Mark is a uh, a first century local story written after the Jewish war in Palestine. Uh, so around. Um, 75 CE or so, but its concerns weren't global. Its concerns weren't eternal. It's con- they were uh, uh, they were very local, urgent questions that had to do with wh- how do we continue to be uh, Jewish at a time when we no longer have the land, at a time when our sacred institution, the temple, is destroyed. Um, and uh, those were his central concerns, a kind of a grieving 
of the loss of land and temple and a uh, rather um, a rather animated uh, belief that Mark and his company would be vindicated, sort of in an apocalyptic way. Um, that was the story. That the, the fact that it is now part of the, the greater Jesus story in the Bible, it's one of the Gospels, it's part of the canon, that's another story. And how Mark became uh, part of the, the, uh, the, the New Testament canon is the story of the rest of that article. Um, but it seems to, it seems to me that uh, 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 Christians are far too uh, ready to think that every gospel is written for them. Uh, I suggest that's not the case. They were written for very local concerns, and these local concerns have been universalized by the process of putting them in the canon and into the lectionary where they're preached about and so forth. Yeah, yeah, uh, interesting. And I think that is where you come to the Q source, which Christian will say as Q source, right? And this Q source is something which uh, is believed to be a source of the source for Matthew and Luke. So, and then you uh, you talk about how, you know, the Q source is a source for, uh, uh, I mean, bringing about the, the kind of um, the Jesus group, the early Jesus group. So what what is the whole argument in this paper here? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the Q source, y- yes. Uh, the Q source is a hypothetical gospel. I mean, it's, it's been excavated, as it were, from from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Um, uh, they have, those two Gospels have a whole lot of material where they uh, share the same content word for word uh, and passage by passage. Uh, so the scholars surmise that this is a source for the Gospel of uh, Matthew and, and Luke. And then, uh, so I meditate in that article about how Q came into being and my argument there is that Q is, is kind of like a conversation between uh, several Jesus believers. Uh, I think they're scribes, uh, scribes, village scribes, a conversation between Jesus believers in which they try to convince each other that Jesus is, in fact, a remarkable figure uh, around whom they can gather. Um, and in the, this conversation uh, with each other, they actually form a group. They become uh, devoted to each other, just like if friends start to get together every week to, uh, to in a book club, and they read a book together and discuss it. If they do it for long enough, the books that they read are no longer as important as the group itself. Uh, they've become to like each other, they're fond of each other, they like their company, and they like having conversations. It seems to me that Q is kind of uh, a document where we see before our eyes the formation of an early Christian group by means of conversing about Jesus. Yeah, so um, uh, one of the chapter, chapter 7, is in the beginning was not the word. Now, uh, what, does, uh, what is... What, what does this paper really argue about? I mean, in, in the beginning was the word is the, I mean, is the word is the very beginning sentence of John. And, you know, you are giving a counterclaim here. So what, what is this counterclaim all about? Yeah. Yes. Uh, in the beginning was not the word. Uh, but the Gospel of John claims the opposite. In the beginning was the word. Uh, 
um, I kind of play with that that opposition. Uh, um, uh, f- first uh, to uh, uh, criticize biblical scholarship and early Christian scholarship that uh, for its devotion uh, to the Word as a means by which Christians were persuaded to join the group. Um, I uh, go on to argue that uh, persuasion, that is, uh, to convert to a group, to become a Jesus believer or a Jesus follower, is far more complex than just the word. Uh, You know, persuasion um, is a very complicated uh, procedure, an affair. Um, And uh, I... Uh, use the uh, figure of uh, oh, what's his name of Gorgias, uh, the Greek uh, rhetorician, uh, to show how complicated um, persuasion is. It is. It certainly has to do with words, but it also has to do with uh, with emotions, with uh, um, power. Uh, I mean, what if you're forced to believe something or forced to join a group. Uh, persuasion is not voluntary, but it is, it is compelled. So that is what I mean by in the beginning was not the word. In the beginning were all kinds of circumstances, predispositions, affinities, estrangements. Uh, all of these um, come before and come with the word. So, so it's, it's basically uh, an argument um, against those scholars who believe that uh, coming to be a Christian is a matter of divine persuasion uh, by use of, of, uh, of sermons and uh, of biblical yeah. texts. Um, yeah. So um, coming to the next chapter, uh, where in this chapter, that is chapter 8, right? You talk about the Greco-Roman society and the family. And... Uh, its relation to uh, celibacy and Christianity and all of those aspects. Uh, so, uh, w- what will be the important takeaways from this very chapter here? Yeah, what is the argument for us? Yes. Uh, yeah, this article is. Uh, I, I, I. It probably shouldn't have been thrown in um, here, but I kind of like the argument because uh, that. Uh, uh, because uh, in, in in the study of early Christianity, one subfield lately in the last twenty years or so has been the study of uh, the small social units of early Christianity, and one of them uh, uh, has been the family. Um, and when the family is considered as a social unit, it is very often considered to be. Um, in terms that look very modern, uh, uh, a mother and a father and, and, and children, the, the, the modern nuclear family. Uh, and uh, I wanted to suggest that that it wasn't that simple, that that uh, modern kind of family is, is, is um, uh, oh, what is the term uh, that we use, is anachronistic. Um, and uh, by focusing uh, on the uh, the eunuch and the vestal virgin, 
I kind of show that uh, you know these uh, these two uh, outlying figures, the marginal figures, uh, challenged notions of family, challenged notions of empire that was supposed to be modeled on the unity of the family. Um, so the argument of this of, of this article really is addressed to Christian scholars who uh, are. Um, um, addressing modern concerns about the family in terms of uh, of looking at the ancient family as a as as the authorized fa- family, and uh, that interestingly also flows into the chapter nine here, where you also talk about the Greco-Roman gender ideology, uh, where it is based on the pathology of femaleness and you know human physiology. So. Uh, how does this work in this um, pathology of femaleness in terms of female physiology, and how does this have a relation to Christianity in that sense? Yeah, you know, femi- you know about feminist criticism and and, and uh, feminist ideologies, uh, feminist uh, uh, critiques of scholarship. Um, this article is really located within that general, broader discussion. Um, Feminist criticism of biblical studies or feminist readings of the New Testament of the Bible have been very, very popular for the last uh, 40 years or so. And uh, very important work has been done there and uh, to disclose for us the sort of patriarchal nature of those texts and of these societies in which these texts were created. But the main uh, motivation, the main concern, it seems to me, of feminist, Christian feminist criticism has been to claim that women, too, belong as fully human beings in the church. They have a place in the church. And uh, the uh, uh, authorization for that claim is a feminist reading of the Bible. Uh, and in in, in my article, I showed that that, that that is the feminist readings of the Bible are kind of misreadings because you cannot demonstrate from the biblical text that women were equal partners in the early Christian enterprise. They were not. Uh, they were not. Uh, women were thought to be inferior, and uh, the entire uh, uh, attempt by early Christian women to become more Christian, more faithful, was to become more like, like men. Uh, uh, that is that is that is quite evident. A woman could not be a member of the church as a woman, except to become sort of like a man, uh, or she is managed by a male figure, the bishop. Um, so the point of that is to show that you know why do we need, or to ask the question, why do we need the Bible to authorize? Um, practices and views and values that we have. Why can't we just authorize them on our own without the help of the Bible? Why does the Bible need to tell us what to do, in other words? And in the the case of women's presence in the church, I say, and in many other cases, I say that we can discard the Bible. It is not of moral value to us. Mm. Very interesting, yeah, interesting argument. And so this is where it takes us to the last chapter, the chapter 10. And this is where you talk about commensality, right? And uh, give a critical, um, I mean, discourse on myths and social formations. 
So uh, what does Mills uh, talks about the social formation in that sense, and what does it have to do, or what does it signify to the, for the Christian community in that sense, or the origins of Christianity? Yeah. Yeah, but, but one could argue that that Christians uh, form themselves into groups around the memorial meal, uh, mm-hmm. the the meal in memory of of their founder of of, of Jesus, and uh, in uh, uh, in scholarship. Uh, in the 20, last 20 years, there's been a tremendous amount of scholarship on the early Christian meals um, and the fun- its function in social formation of Christian groups. Uh, and the main arguments that have been made is that the early Christian meal was like any other Hellenistic, Greek, or Roman meal, um, a meal that uh, was premised on uh, food and the table, making strange people into friends, um, uh, and the, the meal as a demonstration of fellowship and so forth. And again, uh, you know, in my article, I go against the grain of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's not always the case. Meals are also there to uh, mark one group off from another group. Uh, our religion compels us to distinguish ourselves from others. And we do that by excluding others. So meals are also forms of exclusion rather than just inclusion. Meals are forms of estrangement rather than uh, affiliation. Uh, And uh, I show uh, how early Christians used meals precisely as that, not to welcome people, but to uh, put them outside. Yeah, uh, that, that's that's quite um, interesting uh, on a very critical discourse on meals and how it works on Christian community, right? <laughs> and I think for the listeners, uh, they will have to get the book and then go through it to really materialize the argument. I think yeah, so. Yeah. I, I think so. That would be that would be my suggestion: is get the book, read it, and if you don't uh, understand something, oh, well, I, I I'm retired. I can take emails and respond to them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Professor Brown, any last words? Anything that you would like to say uh, that we haven't covered in the in our conversation thus far? Well, first, first, uh, and 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 most importantly, to to thank you for uh, drawing attention uh, to this book. Uh, if I have one last uh, uh, comment, is that this book is an attempt to um, do uh, history and scholarship on early Christianity uh, on the presupposition that early Christians were humans very much like us who were trying to make sense of their world. Uh, Early Christians weren't divinely inspired any more than I am uh, divinely inspired. Let's study them for what they were trying to do rather than for what they're trying to teach us. Uh, uh, Let's study them as humans rather than as semi-divine people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. We have to do that as scholars. As believers, that's, of course, another story. Um, Thank you, Professor Brown. And um, I know that you're retired, but uh, any projects or any exciting thing that is coming ahead of you? <laughs> n- n- not in any urgent sense. I, uh, I have time, yes. uh, so I do a fair bit of reading. Uh, one thing that interests me a, a lot is the question of why uh, the the study of the Christian Bible has become such a large, large enterprise 
in the West, uh, especially. Uh, uh, in North America, uh, there are an estimated uh, 15,000 biblical scholars, um, which is an extraordinary number. Um, uh, I, I'd like to read some more and think some more about why, why that is. Uh, um, and uh, place that in connection with uh, the argument I make in the book in one article about Americans being a Jesus nation, America being a Jesus nation. Um, um, but also uh, relate that to the, 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 the fetish uh, and uh, think of the study of the Bible, both popular or, and scholarly, as a kind of fetishization of of an object in the Bible. Um, that is what I'm reading about. I'm reading a lot about the fetish, uh, its history from Africa to uh, modern times, and see if I can find there some clarity um, about why the Bible is so important. I think that's a really quite good thought and, you know, good way of, um, you know, finding a topic and doing more readings on. I think that's a really interesting uh, topic to work on. Uh, thank you, Professor Brown, for being here in New Books Network. Yeah, and take care, and I wish you best for your future work and projects and your retired life. Yeah. Uh, thank you, and the same to you.